to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Reverend Eric Alexander. As I say, these first 11 verses of uh, Isaiah 40 really provide an introduction to the whole of the second half of Isaiah as well as to this chapter. And at the very beginning, God brings to them in verses 1 and 2, speaking beyond his own generation to the people of God who are to go into Babylon and who there will discover the discipline of God upon them. But Isaiah is now speaking about the day of salvation which they are going to experience. That day will be prepared for in verses 3 to 5 by the preparatory ministry of one who will call for repentance. And that preparatory ministry, like the ministry of salvation itself, is of course fulfilled in the New Testament, the Savior of whom the the section of Isaiah speaks, is of course the Lord Jesus Christ, God's anointed Messiah. And the preparer of the way for the Messiah, who fulfills verses 3 to 5, is of course John the Baptist. Then Isaiah is told to cry and given the message that God is going to bring to them. And it is the message of the Sovereign Lord. It is a message to behold God in all his saving glory marching into the desert to save his people. And here in verse 9 at the end and verse 10 at the beginning, behold your God is the summation of the message that Isaiah is given See, the Sovereign Lord comes with power. Now I was saying last time that throughout the rest of the chapter, Isaiah sees the sovereign power of God exhibited supremely in his creative power. And really what he is picturing for us is God the Creator coming to be God the Redeemer, And with the same mighty power which brought the universe into being and holds it in existence, Isaiah has heard from God that God is going to come again in saving power to bring a new creation out of all the chaos of sin. Now we found last week that there were four ways in this passage from verse 12, which is the bulk of the chapter, in which Isaiah speaks of God, the Redeemer, in relation to creation. And what these people in Babylon and the people who were listening to Isaiah then most needed was this ministry of encouragement. And so Isaiah brings to them the one encouragement that is ultimately there for the people of God, and that is in the nature and character of the God who saves us. Now, my Christian brothers and sisters, there is no 
other portion for God's people than the glories in the Godhead of the God who comes to save us. So constantly God is saying to us precisely what Isaiah says, Behold your God. That is what we need more than anything else. Now, I was suggesting to you last time that Isaiah is given this word from God first concerning God's uniqueness within creation, and that is verse 12. Who else is like him as he asks these questions? He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales of the hills in a balance. It is exalting God over against his creation, you see. He is unique within it because of his greatness and his majesty and his glory. Who else measures the heavens with the span of his hand? The whole idea is the uniqueness of God in creation. Now that was uh, where we got to last week. Verses 13 and 14 tell us about the second thing, which is God's independence of creation. And this is a really important thing for us to grasp. Let me try to spell it out a little for you. The independence of God of his creation. Notice in verse 13, he says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Where did God learn all his wisdom from? That's what he's saying, you see. When we find somebody who is particularly able and particularly gifted, we say, where did he learn this from? Who taught him? What university did he go to? Where did he get all these skills and wisdom? But you can never ask that of God, says Isaiah, for the simple reason that God is the one independent figure in the whole of the universe. He depends on nobody. And is the only original, untaught mind in the universe. Every one of us is in every sense, intellectually and in every other way, we are dependent. God is the ultimate, independent figure in the whole universe. And his relation to the creation, and this is important is the relation of a God of grace who created the universe not because he needed it, but because he wanted to pour out his grace and his goodness upon it so that creation itself is an act of grace. And it's an enormously important thing for us to grasp this. Let me give you one or two illustrations of how people forget it in their thinking about God because it produces a distorted view of God if you don't grasp this. A time or two ago when I was in America, I was driving from Denver in Colorado up to Colorado Springs. And on the main road, there are lots of these huge 
hoardings, you know, that you get in America, three times the size of the sort of thing we have in Britain. And in one of them, I suddenly saw and thought, uh, how remarkable to see this on the road. It was one of these fingers that pointed at you, you know, the sort of thing. And everywhere you go, the finger's still pointing at you. So when you look back, the finger's still there. And the legend above it was, God needs you. And I said to my companion, who was driving, what excellent advertising, and what rotten theology. Because, of course, you see, God does not need you. You need God, but God doesn't need you. He has no needs. That's the one thing about God. Now that's what makes him unique in the universe. Because there's not one of us this evening here who doesn't have needs. We have all kinds of needs in every area of our lives. Intellectual, emotional, moral. All of us have needs. But God has no needs. And his dealings with us are all grace. You see, it's not because he needs us, it's because he loves us that he comes to us in Jesus Christ. And that's really important. Here's another application of the same thing. I'm into the stories this evening. Yeah. My family tell me that there is a stage that you get, you know, you first get into your dotage. And then you get into your anecdotage. And uh, I guess where I probably am. I remember when I was uh, not too long a Christian. I was a student and I was taken to a missionary meeting. And it was a very moving occasion. And was no less moving because of what I'm going to tell you. But uh, on that occasion, uh, one of the speakers told a story. It apparently was a true story of a horrific railway crash which happened in England somewhere at some stage. And uh, many people were killed and there were injured people lying on the railway line. And people were climbing down onto the track and uh, many people were trying to help those who had been slightly injured. But there was a surgeon there. And the surgeon came down from the train and was walking along the track and seeing all these people mortally ill and uh, saying out loud to people who were around him, if only I had my instruments, he said. Now, that of course was true. The man was helpless and frustrated because he had no instruments with him. And what the speaker was saying to us is, here is the wreckage that sin has produced in the world. And God is like that surgeon. And he comes down into the midst of the world and he walks amongst this wreckage. And he is saying... If only I had my instruments. In other words, if people would hear my voice and go to these places. 
And I remember thinking at the time that I really felt quite sorry for God that he was so frustrated and so helpless without the people he needed, you know. And I remember going away feeling really concerned and moved by that. But you know, the man was actually painting a distorted picture of God which verges upon blasphemy. For the simple reason that God is not rendered helpless without human instrumentality. In his grace, he does choose to use instruments. But he chooses to use them not because he would be helpless without them, but because in his grace, that is what he chooses to do. But you see, it's a distortion of the whole idea of what God is like. To imagine that God is rendered like that surgeon, helpless. Because he doesn't have any instruments there. Now, you will not go away with the idea that Eric Alexander was saying tonight that God actually doesn't need any servants of his in the world because he gets on fine without them. That's certainly not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that view of God is a distorted view. And it produces a distorted view of Christian service as well, you see. Because the mystery of the grace of God is that if he had chosen to do it, he could get on fine without me. But in his mercy, he has chosen to use instruments, human instruments. But the simple fact is that God has no needs. He is the only ultimately independent one. Now, you know we often say of somebody, he's very self-sufficient, don't we? It's a description we make of people. But of course, it's never true. Nobody is self-sufficient. But God is in his nature and in his essence. And need, you see, is a creature word. We have needs. God has none. And that really is an important thing for us to grasp, or else we lapse into the danger of thinking distorted and unbiblical thoughts of God. Ultimately, we make God dependent on us rather than our being dependent on Him. So that the reason, you see, that we engage in the service of God 
is not that God couldn't do without us. It is that God calls us and our task is to obey him and to do his will and to do it all. And at the end of the day we shall say the greatest mystery of grace is that God stoops down to use such earthen vessels as we are. When we imagine that we are indispensable to God, then precisely that happens which Paul is warning us against in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says the reason that God puts his treasure in earthen vessels is that the excellency of the power may belong to God and not to us. Now that's a sense of proportion which we greatly need in our thinking. God's uniqueness in creation is the first of these principles. His independence of creation is the second. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? He is the original thinker, the independent mind and personality of the universe. Here's the third thing. His preeminence or supremacy above the creation. That's the theme of verses 15 to 20. And the key question is in verse 18 at the beginning, repeated again as I was saying in verse 25, to whom then will you compare God? He is incomparably above the creation. That is, there is nothing in the creation which can be compared to God. But at the beginning of the passage, in verse 15, Isaiah does compare the nations of the earth and the islands of the seas with God. And he concludes in verse 17, before him, all the nations are as nothing. Look at verse 15. Surely the nations, he says, are like a drop, probably from a bucket. That is the drop that would drip from a bucket that is over full. They are regarded as dust on the scales. That is when you're weighing something substantial on the scales and there is dust there, you would discount it. So by comparison with God, the nations are like the drop in a bucket or dust on the scales and the islands are the fine dust. That is the invisible dust on the scales. So he says it's even impossible for the creation to worship him adequately and to exalt him sufficiently. Do you see this view of God? It is a different view of God from the one we have. Again and again you find Calvin saying, your thoughts of God are diminished, he says. And it's 
because we have such an idea of God that he's a person like ourselves, you know. That's one of the grave dangers of so much thinking about God. We project onto God things that are true of us rather than finding our revelation of God in Scripture, which is the vital thing. Now notice what he says. The world, he says, which is, is summarized in Lebanon, it doesn't have enough wood. The great wood came from the forests of Lebanon, of course. He says they don't have enough wood to provide altar fires to worship in enough. Nor does it have animals sufficient for burnt offerings to worship God sufficiently. Because his greatness is so preeminent that it is impossible for all the trees of Lebanon to provide a fire for an altar to worship him. Or all the animals it contains, and there were multitudes of animals in Lebanon, to provide a sacrifice that is worthy of him. How do you see this view of God's greatness and glory? At the end of it, when he's been expounding this Calvin praise, some of the greatest parts of some of Calvin's commentaries are in the prayers he prays at the end of an exposition. Sovereign Lord, he prays, thy glory is beyond all praising. Thy majesty leaves us speechless. We can neither fathom thy greatness nor properly praise it. We therefore humble ourselves before thee and cry, Be thou exalted above all. Now do you think of that when you come into the presence of God? Is that how you feel in relation to him? Thy majesty leaves us speechless. Now, of course, this principle of God's preeminence above creation is why Scripture forbids us both representing God through an image or replacing God with an idol. Do you notice? Notice how... Uh, he continues in this way in verse 18 to whom then will you compare God what image will you compare him to now there is no image that represents God you see this is where the whole idea of images is of course forbidden in the law of God and the reason is that God's nature and character and glory are such that it is impossible for us to have a representation of him. And this is why images are wrong. There is only one image of the invisible God, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. There is no other image. And all attempts at forming some kind of image of God are utter failures and, in that sense, blasphemies. The same is true of the idol, of course, which he goes on to speak of in verse 19. 
You'll notice it's clearly inconsistent with this view of God to represent God in an image or to replace God with an idol. As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, he says. Think of how diminished is this idol compared to the greatness of a sovereign God who rules over the universe. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol. Now, what does he have to do? Here's Isaiah poking fun at them. He's got to make sure that the idol doesn't fall off its feet, he says. He's got to be careful that the idol doesn't have a collapse. Now how ridiculous that this is what people fall down and worship. Do you see what he is saying? He is saying if you see the great glory of God, you can neither replace him with an idol, nor represent him with an image. And the two are therefore totally impossible if you have a biblical view of God. And compared to him, there is neither representation nor replacement. Now from verse 21 to 24, the fourth thing that Isaiah brings to us is the fact that God is sovereign over creation. Remember, he is unique in the creation he is independent of creation. He is preeminent above the creation. And now he says he is sovereign over it. Now here he is applying particularly this truth to the people of Judah. Do you not know, verse 21, have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Now, what is the truth that they have to understand? Here it is in verse 22. He, that is the Lord, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, this is the ultimate truth, you see about the world in which we live, the universe in which we have been put by God. That it is He, the God of whom Isaiah has been speaking, who sits on a throne which is encircling the universe. And this is a glorious picture because, you see, it is a God-centered picture of the world and of life, and of meaning, and of every area of our existence. And there is nothing perhaps that we need so much as to replace our man-centered thinking with God-centered thinking. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, you see, the trouble is that the people of Judah, as if you were with us from the early stages of our study of Isaiah, you'll remember, the people of Judah were greatly impressed by human power, by the strength of nations like Egypt and the Assyrians and so on. And so, in order to get themselves out of days of pressure, 
they began to negotiate alliances with the Egyptians or with the Assyrians or with the Syrians. They looked round about them for whatever nation seemed to give them hope. And they sought alliances. They had ambassadors coming from them. They fell for their blandishments. And they made alliances. And then found disaster breaking in upon their lives. And God said to them, Blessed is the nation that trusts in the Lord. Put not your trust in princes. But they did. The trouble is, so do we, don't we? Our human nature has not really changed deep down so regularly. Our confidence is placed in things that are merely human. And Isaiah says, do you not know? Yes, we do know. That's not the problem. Have you not heard? Yes, we've heard. That's not our problem either. Has it not been told you from the beginning? Yes, it has. Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And what's the true picture of humanity before him? Its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. And notice, he brings princes to nothing. And reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Do you notice how Isaiah is putting a true perspective upon life for them? It's rather like the agricultural picture in verse 24. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they they take root in the ground than what happens. This again, you see, is Isaiah's, almost his sense of irony coming. He says, what happens is this. God doesn't even need to send a thousand armies against them. Do you know what he does? He's like somebody who holds them in his hand and he goes, and they're blown away. Look at what he says. He brings princes to naught, reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them. And they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. So he compares God to the nations and to human powers even at their greatest. Notice how now he turns and says, now lift up your eyes. He says, look round about you in the world, but now lift up your eyes and look at the heavens. He says, compare God to the heavens. Well, notice how he does it in verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He says, to whom do they owe their origin? And the answer is, to the Lord. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Now, the picture is a military picture there. You need to understand the language to understand this. It's a military metaphor. 
And the idea is of the commanding officer calling out all his troops. I don't think they do this in modern armies. But he's calling out his troops by name, you know, Smith, Jones, Brown, so on. He calls them all out. And then at the end of the day, he says, not one of them is missing. Now that's how God does with the stars of the heaven, he says. He calls them out, he marshals them, he brings them into order, and they obey him, do you see? This is the God we are speaking of. My dear friends, this is the God who has taken you into his hands in Jesus Christ. This is the God who is setting about remaking and remolding you and forming you into his image. It is the God who calls the stars into their place. And he says, not one of them is missing. Now the significance of that you find when you go on into the next bit and you find him saying, verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Not one of his people is going to be missing either on that glorious day when he calls his people to himself, you see. Not one of them. Nothing will be missing. There is nothing that God will have forgotten. He even remembers the names of the stars. But you see, your name he remembers because it's graven on his heart. Now can you see how this is so encouraging for God's people? It produces two things, in fact. You will notice it produces two qualities. One is humility. And that's what Isaiah has been pressing for. That's why he says the nations are like grasshoppers. They thought that they were gigantic beings who were dominating the earth. And Isaiah says they're just like grasshoppers. He produces a true biblical humility. Now, I want to say to you again what I've said before. True biblical humility is not born or created in our hearts by looking into ourselves and trying to make ourselves small. That's, that becomes psychologically sick. When we try to demean ourselves and make ourselves appear small, true biblical humility is born by seeing the greatness of God. And the other thing that it produces is not just humility in God's people. And God knows how much we need that, my dear friends. Have you ever thought of this? We're talking about Christian unity on Sunday evening. One of the things that fractures unity more than anything else in the world is pride. And one of the things that makes us useless to God is pride. You really grasp that? God gives grace to the humble, but God resists the proud. Have you noticed that in Peter? That is, he keeps the proud at a distance, at arm's length. He resists them, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility is the first thing. Hope is the other. Do you notice it? He says, 
Even youths, verse 30, grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. There is all the difference in the world, you see, between trusting in the flesh and trusting in the Lord because trusting in the flesh ultimately brings you to despair and disappointment. Trusting in the Lord gives you hope because He will not fail for He is God. And that's the solid ground on which God's people are to live and build their lives. We need what uh, Jim Packer said in my hearing. Is the daily need of every Christian a large bucketful of the doctrine of God? He could have put it better. But it's true nonetheless. We greatly need a new vision You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.